Hello friends and welcome back to The Signal Podcast from Christians in Media. I'm your host, James Poulter. As we head into the Christmas period, we wanted to bring you this special conversation with a dear friend and legendary broadcaster, Sheridan Voisey. Many of you may know Sheridan from his appearances on Pause for Thoughts on Radio 2 with Chris Evans, or on the multiple different campaigns that he has been running this year around some of his book launches and many of his other media appearances at also many conferences throughout the UK. Sheridan has been a friend and collaborator for many years, and I wanted to sit down and get the latest from him on what he is doing across the three main areas he works in as a writer, a broadcaster and a speaker. And so I took some time to sit with Sheridan and really dive into some of what's been going on in his life this year, as well as also some back history of his career. We spent some time together at Henrywood House in central London, home of things like Tog Studios and right next door to the BBC. And in this conversation, we go into all sorts of areas of Sheridan's life and career, and I think you're going to find it fascinating, encouraging and challenging. We got into some really interesting issues. Coming up at the end of the show, I'll be giving you a forecast towards a few of the things that are coming up. But here, I would hope you will enjoy a special extended conversation with my dear friend, Sheridan Voisey. Well, welcome to this special uh, long-form episode of Signal uh, from Christians in Media under our new banner, which is nice to have. And I am very pleased to introduce you to a, a friend and collaborator for a while back now, uh, Sheridan Voisey, who is joining us in uh, not Wogan House, where you've just come from this morning, but Henry Wood House, just a couple of uh, doors down the road on Regent Street uh, here in the heart of Westminster, to really just chat a little bit about what you've been doing as a Christian in the media for a number of years now. I'm glad we have that name. It kind of makes it a little bit easier to I love it. have these conversations. Uh, Sheridan, why don't you try and explain to us what, <laughs> what have you been doing recently? What do I do? What do I do? Well, thank you, James. Thank you for yeah. having me on the podcast. And you know, I'm, you know that I'm a big fan of yours and, uh, and also Christians in the media as well. So, um, well, I mean, the last 20, 25 years, it's been writing, speaking, broadcasting. Those have been my three things. Mm. And the majority of time has been spent with broadcasting yeah. until I I then moved to the UK from Australia in 2011, Mm. where then it's been primarily writing, speaking, and broadcasting. Right. Um, So while highlight in the middle there, highlight in the middle. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So while I'm not hosting a show anymore, which I miss every day, um, I do get to do things like pause for thought on Radio Two and um, find myself on the other side of the desk, probably on average maybe once every fortnight now, um, contributing to some show. here in the UK, Australia, the US, South Africa sometimes, yeah. um, with my kind of author's hat on. Right. So it's been a really interesting switch around yeah. of being all those years hosting to then primarily as a contributor bringing something else. And it's actually, it's got me really thinking in the last few years, would I ever go back to hosting shows? Because when you when you host, you are there to facilitate somebody else's story mm. and you, it's hard to bring your own content in. Yeah. So I'm in the last few years have been this season of kind of bringing my own content, um, which is really, really delightful. Let's take us back then. So a number of years ago now, you were hosting this open house on national radio in Australia. What was it like to have that ability to speak into so many people's lives, particularly when you are coming from a perspective of having faith and having a a perspective on the world that not everybody shares? What were just some of the things that you learned doing that every day? Great question. Actually, when I was hosting it, 
it was a weekly show mm. and we put pretty much two full-time staff into one Sunday night three-hour show so you can imagine there was quite a lot going into it so it was a very fast-paced show something changing every seven or eight minutes apart from then the feature guest which could go 20-25 minutes um, the whole idea was to engage secular people with Christian ideas in a way that wouldn't be pushing them into a corner and say you know make a commitment to Jesus um, you know repent or burn yeah. kind of thing pads indeed just begins yeah. and the, the swell reaches <laughs> That's and right. you kind of come into their ears and they, they say it and they the moment it. of conversion happens exactly it wasn't like that it wasn't like that's that that's a shame <laughs> <laughs> well maybe we're missing wouldn't, when wouldn't we all love that market. yeah absolutely so but to be a committed Christian and to recognise well I'm not going to water down that so we would have people like Alain de Bottom onto the show to talk about that Alain was, was really interesting because he actually admitted the reason why he's an atheist is because he's being faithful to his earthly father by denying a heavenly father and I said well that's fascinating so it's like a, there's psychological reasons then mm. so we had lots of really interesting conversations like that um, we kind of built the show on like a little creed of ideas that, that we would be excellent so we would pursue excellence at, at, at every cost um, that we would uh, be missional in the sense that we would take a broad perspective to our three core content areas which were life faith and culture um, we would be credible so we really would try and get the best guests on, on possible to talk about things even if they weren't Christians talking about some of the general issues going on in the world uh, and um, we would be faithful you know we would not deny who we were Um, so it was bringing all of those things together and we had some really special some special times there with all sorts of folks calling into the show from all sorts of religious backgrounds or no religious background Um, and so getting to host that for for, uh, to launch it and to host it for those years was was a great dream come true I mean during that time and and since then as well you've interviewed literally hundreds of people (laughs) Um, I think it's 2000 last count so you know there's so many different voices that have had the opportunity to challenge you to speak into your life what are some of the most memorable from that time and and the ones that you've held on to during that period I find that the hardest question to answer because (laughs) there has been so many great ones Mm. Um, so from the from from the kind of Christian camp um, I waited years literally years to interview Richard Foster Mm. author of Celebration of Discipline yeah one of my favourite books me too yeah me too I've read most of his books and uh, you'll love this James when I first kind of approached him many years ago it would have been even probably late 90s originally in the early 2000s I got um, an email back from his personal assistant saying you know thank you for your interest Richard's clearness committee have met to discern to that he's not to do any more media for the next 12 months wow we thank you for respecting this <laughs> how do you how do you come back at that there's, there's no answer is there <laughs> I think it was 2008 or 2009 by the time I got to, to do that and, and it was fantastic Eugene Peterson who we've just lost of course um, he was great although frustrating because he spoke so slowly yeah. and on radio you're just waiting for you know yeah, it's all yeah, that you time. Want the moments yeah, yeah exactly so it was good um, the challenging ones that were just fascinating was 
Brian Deacon, mm. uh, who is the actor who played Jesus in the Jesus film. Yeah. Um, a controversial thing in and of itself in many ways. Yeah. Um, this is the 70s one. Yeah. Right? Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, the most watched film in, in history. Exactly. Um, he's not a Christian. Yeah. And so to talk about that, and he said, well, I came as close as possible while I was shooting that film. Mm. Um, and fortunately, one of the aspects was then seeing the, you know, some, some of the negative aspects of the kind of large American church at work yes. that he didn't like to right. see. Um, and yet we, you know, we had a great conversation as to, as to where he was at now. That's where I came alive is in the middle of those kinds of mm. conversations. Mm. Um, so Brian was interesting. And of course, that journey of with the show and broadcasting on a regular basis kind of came to an end a number of years ago and then you came to the UK. What prompted that move? Why come here of all places? I mean, you had the sunny warmth of, you know, kind of the Gold Coast keeping you happy uh, to the somewhat mediocre greyness out of our window this morning in Westminster. <laughs> right. What what prompted the UK? Why come here? Yeah, so many people. In fact, there was the, the leader of the National um, uh, Psychics Association in Australia. Yeah. Uh, when he heard, you know, so this is the kind of people you know yeah. that we were engaging. Uh, he said, "Why on earth are you going to the UK?" And he was a Brit. He said, "Why? Well, no, I came over here twenty years ago to get yeah. away from all that." Um, a whole book has been written about that, quite literally, called Resurrection Year. Um, during the 10 years that all of these dreams were coming true, including that open house show that we've been talking about uh, and all these other great things happening for me and career and ministry and things, um, my wife and I were trying to start a family, tried everything yep. that we felt comfortable trying, um, and that came to a screaming halt uh, on Christmas Eve of 2010 mm. um, when we got the second of two phone calls the first one um, on our very last embryo being transferred after our final round of IVF after three years of trying to adopt and multiple rounds of IVF and special diets and special supplements and chiropractic don't know what we tried <laughs> healing prayer you know we tried everything final embryo to be transferred we'd already decided this is it yeah. this doesn't work we're moving on we were told we were pregnant and family and friends had erupted in applause and you yeah. know there was jubilation and then quite literally on Christmas Eve we got the second call saying I'm sorry we got it wrong and so that just yeah. brought everything down yeah. particularly for my wife and Marin really only had two dreams in life. One was to become a mum, yeah. and the other one was to live and work overseas. And right. so it was time for the consolation prize. Right. And yeah. uh, when she got offered a, a job at a little university called Oxford University. I've heard of that. <laughs> heard of that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we saw that as kind of God's new beginning for her, and it really was a new beginning. Yeah, of course. For her. And so, for me. so, but, so you come, come to the UK, and you come settling in, and you know, despite the president of the Psychic Society not seeing it in the... <laughs> in the crystal ball somewhat before um, these kind of major life moment you know kind of happens of the disappointment of what's happened with the infertility and it's a journey that you and I have both kind of been on and discussed but you know something that is uh, you know very hard to reconcile with our beliefs in what God says about you know kind of going into the world and um, you know multiplying but you've had this ability since then to really tell that story as you've come to the UK and in many ways impart that to many other people that have you know birthed so many other ideas from it 
what's that journey been like of you know, kind of seeing that story particularly in, in earlier this year when it went into the very much into the mainstream media you were doing interviews for the BBC the book was coming out you know, the the um, opportunities to kind of talk about that topic that is so often left hidden and, and um, often actively hidden um, what has been the biggest thing you've learned from going through that process it's been a it's been a difficult one because this is not the topic I really wanted to go public on um, it was Adrian Plass who a number of our listeners will know mm. um, Christian author who suggested that I should write our story into a book and it wasn't even on my radar I was thinking elsewhere about other books but when I came to the UK I mean everything closed down um, BBC weren't returning my phone calls at that stage even though I was being you know put forward by well-connected people and publishers were turning me down because I didn't have any profile here. Which year was this? This was 2011 right? and then moving to 2012. Yeah. Um, so then I started writing Resurrection Year in 2012, got rejected by publishers here. Uh, one publisher said, come back to us when you're famous. And I'll work on that for the next couple of weeks and yeah. I'll get back to you. Yeah. Um, and then it was picked up by Thomas Nelson, biggest Christian publisher in the world, top five mainstream publisher in the world and uh, then it came out in 2013 and then things started to move on from there the first few years being here were tough I have to say Mm. Um, a good deal of that to do with identity Mm. Um, I think I think it's a great human question who am I and the great answer to that for the Christian is that despite any other role that I might have as a mother as a father as a media person as an artist as a business person whatever you know other roles that you fulfill the greatest message that we have is that actually you're a child of God and all of those other roles are good but they're Mm. secondary and they can go being a child of God is central I had spoken about this I had written about it but then when I came to the UK I realized actually Sheridan the majority of my identity was tied up in being a broadcaster yeah front-facing, public-facing person when nobody was listening to me anymore. I felt, you know, bereft. So the big journey has been really rediscovering who I really am at my deepest level. Mm. Going public with the story was another matter that then took me into very different areas that I never really wanted to or, you know, I dreamt of talking about. But I have to say, uh, James, it's been the most fruitful few years possible because it has connected... You asked me what I've learned. I've learned that when you share your pain vulnerably, you not only create some space for yourself to heal, you actually open up the space for other people to heal. That's right, yeah. And so talking about, you know, men and childlessness and mm. infertility and low sperm count, you know, not really my, my brand dreams, if you, if you want to. No, mine neither. No. But we've been there. Yeah, yeah, yeah indeed. And, and But what happens is when we actually do share about it, there's a whole bunch of guys that are kind of listening around the corner who yeah. don't really want to be identified, but they go, oh man, somebody else is talking about this. That's right. Yeah. Now I can. Because yeah. I bet you probably felt, as I did, incredibly isolated during those yes, times. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's something that no one wants to talk about and you don't, it's not something that comes up down the pub, you know, in the weeks prior to you finding something like that out, right? So exactly. you don't know until those situations come along who you should talk to about those issues. Yes. When, when, you know, vulnerability is an interesting thing that you kind of touched upon there. In the past couple of years, there seems to have been a shift towards this ability for vulnerability to be something that we display you know obviously people like Brené Brown who've you know, massively catapulted that through uh, her TED talk and, and recent books 
into a space where it feels acceptable to take what used to be unacceptable into the limelight and then talk about it. Do you see that this is you know a movement that particularly for us as men and particularly men in the media um, are going to finally be able to kind of realise some of those problems that we should all have been talking about many years ago finally come to light. Do you actually see a real a tidal shift happening or is this just a one-off issue? I wouldn't say it's a tidal shift, but I think there's definitely a wave building. Mm. Maybe that's the metaphor to use. Um, last year when uh, I was shooting something for BBC Breakfast, me and the cameraman got chatting and he said, uh, oh, last night I was in the pub talking with my mates and we got talking about depression and it turns out some of the guys were on antidepressants and he said, you know, a decade ago we would never have shared about that because we would have been kind of seen to be weak. Mm. So there's progress being made on that and then I got a bit cheeky and I pushed him and I said what about low sperm count? (laughs) (laughs) You talk talk to your mates in the pub about that and he said no. If anything we'd be joking about the opposite being the case. So the wave is building and people can share things now without uh, too much fear of uh, some sort of um, slap back in a way that we never could before but we're not quite there yet on some issues mm. but, but but I think it's building and I think the more that we can actually take those vulnerable moments in appropriate times um, you know you, you can overshare and maybe there's a counter argument at the moment that we're just kind of <laughs> getting a little bit too immersed in our own stuff mm-hmm. um, over emotional some people would kind of also accuse it of which in the yeah. church has always been seen as something potentially negative right and just always putting ourselves in the center of the stories oh this is how i feel and this is what i went through and before we know it, you know it's almost this you know back in the 80s they used to have these encounter groups you know where it was only about getting together and sharing the deepest things of your soul and if you didn't share anything deep and dark and mm. terrible then um, somehow you hadn't been truly authentic almost feels like we're doing that a little bit now and so I'm waiting for maybe a little bit of a pullback but the right people need to be doing it and some of us need to pull back I somewhat see that as a counter to a lot of the digital culture that we live in today is that so many of us are know so much about one another on the surface level already that maybe finally if anything it's giving us the ability to have to fill that vacuum of well we can't talk about like what did you do on holiday because we already know we can't talk about you know what we were reading last week because we already know hmm. but what a great insight we have to maybe now kind of go to the emotional space it's the only thing that we aren't actually talking about know. or we aren't sharing because the data stream doesn't kind of provide it how are you coping with that kind of shift towards digital particularly as someone who has to make their living by being publicly out there all the time and you know talking about this new book that you've got coming in March there's a new documentary next year you know that's a compulsion I suppose almost to have to be always on particularly when you don't have a one fixed career mode you know you're a freelance person making your own way in the world do you feel a tension there that you have to always be on and showing a version of yourself whilst also in many cases dealing with these really tough emotional issues as well I really do Um, just this last week I was leading a retreat um up in Scargill House in North Yorkshire and uh, I didn't tweet or put anything online the whole week and I felt anxious every night that I hadn't but it was such an intense retreat because we were dealing with people's broken dreams and uh, you know I think I spoke 10 did 10 sessions in 5 days so it was really quite intense just in terms of content Mm. then there's meeting together with people afterwards and praying with people and things I did not have any headspace to post anything and I was noticing the anxiety in the back of my mind I'm not putting anything up on Facebook people don't know what I'm doing 
Hang on, Sheridan. Is that really, really necessary? <laughs> There's yeah. a time to draw back to go deep with a mm. few people. That doesn't have to always be public. And yet, yes, this is part of the space that we live in. So I find it a tension. The way that I deal with that tension is, number one, have, trying to, to post stuff online that really will be beneficial to other people, not just always self-promotional. Um, and number two, I actually have... Uh, Facebook fasts actually yeah. come off for a month, at least uh, one month a year to kind of come off social media, yeah. just to kind of keep those anxieties in place. Remind yourself what it was like before we had all these things. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> I try and cling to that one again as well. Mm-hmm. Tell us about what's coming next. You're working on this new book that's coming out in March. What can you tell us about that? It's called The Making of Us, Who We Can Become When Life Doesn't Go As Planned. And it's following on from Resurrection Year. There was a book in between called Resilient, but this is kind of following on. Resurrection Year was a memoir talking about our story, coming to the UK, starting again. And that's kind of opened up doors around the world to help people, not just with infertility, but all sorts of broken dreams, Mm. career dreams, artistic dreams, all sorts of things. I've got three or 400 emails now from people who've shared their stories as a result of that. So that's been the kind of world-changing event. And then this book follows on from that because I noticed that in those emails, there were two common themes. Now that this has happened might be a divorce, might be not having children, might be not having a second child, same grief. Uh, Now that my art hasn't made it to the masses, now that nobody's downloading my music off iTunes, whatever it might be, Mm -hmm. I don't know who I am Mm -hmm. and I don't know what I'm here for. Mm -hmm. The two great questions. And you kind of think, didn't we answer those back in the 20s or 30s? And they've come back again. And so this is another memoir based on a pilgrimage that a friend and I did from Lindisfarne Island down to Durham. Mm. And having talks about life and where we're at and identity and calling mm. in a fresh way particularly for those who for whom life hasn't gone to plan and I guess I land on two or three key messages one being when you lose your identity it's actually the best time to discover who you most deeply are mm. and secondly that this tragedy that's happened to you or this thing that's happened to you or this great disappointment that's happened to you um, could actually be the making of you mm. it could actually be the catalyst that brings your greatest gifts yeah. to the world and if you if you manage this right this could really be a great source of powerful service to mm. other people mm. so those, those are the two messages I find myself in this position as you know at the moment going through career transition and many of us go through career transitions as a, a large part of our life experience I suppose you, you think Especially of these moments how much when someone goes through that do you think that they should focus on redeeming what has gone before versus focusing on what should come next where should the balance be good question um number one would just be what is your immediate need and so if you actually know that within six weeks there's not going to be any money for rent um well then you need to focus on the future and just getting something stable Mm. once you once you do that i would say if you can carve out time to actually start to process the past it it can be profound it really can be profound and it can take a while so Mm. don't rush it Mm. it can be like a little project that you've got kind of going on in in the background Mm. journal it talk to somebody about it Mm. um read books about it um explore these kinds of things talk to close people um to you and just start to unpack who was I then was it who I was meant to be Uh, what of that season can I learn from 
And what what's what what are the space that I now have uh, is actually going to be there as a channel for God's blessing and power to mm. actually flow through. That's kind of the the big metaphor that's come out of this. Then when we lose something, there's a space in our life mm. that's been made. And I've discovered just like the Apostle Paul, you know, he said when I'm when I'm weak, actually, then I'm really strong. Yeah. The verse we don't often look at is Second Corinthians four, where he talks about all the persecution he's experienced and other apostles have experienced he comes up with this really intriguing phrase he says death was at work in us but life was at work in you and it seems to be that when we have those little deaths Mm. those little things that are lost careers or family members or relationships or whatever um, if we put them into God's hands uh, they can actually become spaces through which his his power and blessing can flow to other people that's what we've experienced with being childless is that that space opened up a channel through which now a lot of people are starting again from their own broken dreams had a, a Carmelite brother you know a monk uh, so he t- listen to my story and he said uh, Oh, would you would you look at that? Would you look at what God's doing? Uh, the lack of a birth in your life is birthing life in others. Yeah. It's like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. So if you can, carve out time to reflect on those things mm. and see what that space can actually open up mm. in terms of being a blessing to other people. Often when these things happen, like your example with childlessness or um, you know, kind of the loss of a family member through something, that is often, there's no one to blame for that situation. And so we turn our blame often to God. How have you coped with that? And also the other people that you are meeting now through the process of selling this story, telling this story, not selling it. Uh, although, <laughs> I'd like to think or, I'm telling it, or, but yeah, or, or, there's or, a bit or, of both. Or both, both maybe it's connected. <laughs> that was a faux pas. But telling the story, what do you say to people when they come and say, Sheridan, that's great, but like I thought that this was in my plan because God said this was in my plan, and now it's not. Yeah, you know, it's easy when there's someone obvious to blame. A job goes because someone shafts you on the way out the door, or a redundancy gets made by some corporate decision, or something like that, or you know, you lose something because you did something wrong in a contract. All of those things we can pin something on, but when there's no one to blame. How do we reconcile that to ourselves in a way that allows us to move forward? You're good at this. Good questions, James. Um, (laughs) Really good. Um, There's two responses, actually, that we discovered when life goes wrong. One is, yes, you shake your fist at heaven and say, God, why? I mean, you just say the word and we would have been parents. And we still, to this day, actually don't know why. Mm. After 10 years of trying, we never got the child. Even the redemption of it, the recycling of it, it's not necessarily the reason, although we can see that that's been a wonderful turnabout of events. The other response, of course, is that you blame yourself, even though, like you said, there's no official reason, but that's what that's what both Marin and I did. Marin blamed God. Why don't you come through for us? I turned it on myself. Mm. I was the biological reason why my wife couldn't get what she wanted. Um, but I started to think, well, maybe you're the spiritual reason. Maybe you're not standing in faith enough. Maybe the prosperity preachers are right. You know, you should be naming and claiming and holding and confessing and all of those things. Oh, and so I tried that at one stage. You know, I've tried everything else. Yeah. And there came, um, there came a time where we just had to say, this world is fallen. We do not know why this is the case. 
and to actually let go, let God off the hook for giving us a reason for this. Mm. That was a big thing for Merrin to actually just say, I may never know the reason for this. Uh, and to not, you almost have to forgive God, mm. <laughs> um, even though he's done nothing wrong, but to actually let him off the hook that mm. we say, well, you must give us at least a reason so we have an answer to why. And for me, there was almost a bit of self-forgiveness, even a, a sense of, I didn't choose this. I can't see anything that I did in the past that would have made me have a low sperm count. <laughs> um, so, uh, and with the whole faith thing, I just had to go through that and see that it was a load of rubbish. Mm. And then just go, what you know what? Drive me back to scripture, see that all the prayers that Jesus really blessed were actually prayers of, you can do this. Yeah. And he said, oh, I haven't seen such great faith in Israel. I'm going to give it to you. That's all it was. And so it takes you deeper, takes you bigger. Um, but there's there's no doubt that there's a there's a process to go through in that in working those kinds of, of things out and it can take years so there's no short answer the big answer is to journey through it and stay in the room with god that's what i would say is is just Mary and i have a a saying about our relationship that we try and stay in the room when we're arguing rather than run out and slam the door try and do that with God as well mm. you're working these problems out very much in public in the media and also in the specific strand of the media which is both the Christian press as well as also the you know, kind of the national media as a Christian and you, you said on a recent podcast that you know why does anybody kind of out themselves as a Christian these days <laughs> it's, not a, it's not a particularly helpful thing to do because it puts you into a a certain bracket perhaps what are you doing if anything to avoid being put in that bracket or are you happy being put there mm. my prayer always with the stuff that I do in public so yeah just a couple of weeks ago it was um, it was the Telegraph uh, Sunday Telegraph newspaper before that it was Daily Mail and then the Radio 2 stuff and there's been lots of stuff on Radio 4 and BBC Breakfast and BBC News and mm. my prayer whenever I go into that because it's probably just me but whenever I walk through the door of the BBC I do feel a certain pressure to secularise yeah I think it's probably just my own insecurities but you just you kind of feel um, this, this is a different space for me even though I gravitate to radio studios you know you can't keep me away. And so my prayer is always, um, God, may I be faithful to who you are uh, and may, may I be uh, appropriate to the segment that I'm doing. And so straddling both those lines. And so if I'm going to do a secular newspaper interview or go on pause for thought or whatever, pause for thought's great because I can be a person of faith. Yeah. That's specifically why they have That's me. That's why it's there. Yeah. yeah. In fact, one of the producers on one of the scripts actually said, no, you need to put more God into this one. <laughs> so so well, I've never heard that before. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, which, is, which is just brilliant. Mm. But it's trying to be faithful so not backing down from who I am and who God is um, but also being appropriate to the segment and being appropriate to the, to the to the spot and so not trying to push it out of out of the boundaries of what it is into what I want it to be and so that means that um, I mean my 20 years I've been wanting and trying to speak in a way speak faith in a way that will make sense to the person the people that are walking down there in the, in the street that we can see from here mm. so I get away from Christian jargon and those kinds of things so those those are the two prayers that I have mm. hopefully that helps 
It does, it does. One of the things we've returned to a couple of times in this conversation and conversations we've had before is around developing, you said it yourself, kind of spiritual disciplines or that Richard Foster book, that celebration of discipline, one of those kind of things that we often return to on the show because so many of us are trying to deal with how do we ensure that we are coming back to our roots in faith on a day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month basis. Whilst dealing with all of this craziness that we <laughs> inhabit in the kind of media world, you know, we record this on, on a Monday after a week of some of the most odd yes. British political turmoil with things going on all over the place. Um, what do you come back to day-to-day to keep yourself grounded, to keep yourself rooted in good discipline? Do you have any tips for any of us? Well, I do. Um, the thing that is just pivotal for me is a moment in our spare room. I've got a little chair set up in the corner. It's my inner sanctum. You know, it's um, you know Moses had the tent of meeting back in the Old Testament before the temple, before any of the tabernacles and everything came along, and it was just a tent. He went there. That's where he he met with God and heard from God the directions that he needed to give to the people. That's my tent of meeting. I have to have time there, even if it's an incredibly busy time, mm. and I can only kind of go in there for five or ten minutes. I have to be present before God um, before I then go into the day. Mm. Um, so that time is just incredibly important. Generally, I have the space, because I don't have kids, um, to, in many ways, sometimes have an hour yeah. in there. And that is where the clarity for the day comes. And so that's where I will discern... Mm. Uh, is it this, this, this project or this one? Because I might really want to be working on project A, yeah. but actually I need to be working on project B. Yeah, yeah. And so that's where I get that clarity. Mm-hmm. That's where the Pause for Thought scripts are written. Um, that's where the devotionals that I write come out. That's where the book breakthroughs happen every day. I It's just the way I write. I have at least three major uh, literary blocks. And I get up out of my desk yeah. in my little office studio there I go into the tent of meeting <laughs> and I wait yeah. and I just wait and sometimes I'm waiting for a while mm. so that is key for me the other thing recently has been working out um, kind of your kind of your mapping your energy mm. um, I'm particularly strong in the morning and so those first few hours you know leading up to lunchtime uh, I protect really quite viciously mm. from um, from from meetings or from anything yeah. uh, because that's my most productive time yeah. um, I now take two hours off in the afternoon mm. which was really hard for me to do mm. because I thought everybody else is working I should be working yeah. but the good thing about us freelancers is we can actually manage our own time and that two <laughs> those hours those of us who are good at it can right <laughs> <laughs> right disciplines right yep. um, and that two hours I'll walk the dog I'll have a little bit of a rest then I'll actually come back and I'll just do the, the next a few hours will work up to 6, 6.30 mm. and it'll be much more productive. So those are the two kind of key things for me to then being productive and, and trying to work with God in the midst of all the things, like you said, all the deadlines that come yeah. every day. Creating space is what we need to do. Yep. So the last thing I really want to ask you about is kind of this Magi documentary that's yes. coming next year. 
why focus on the Magi, these strange men and women that marched across the yes. <laughs> sands? Yeah. What's well, the men? Men they would have been. They were, we I'm sure there's think... some women somewhere with them. Well, good. very good point. Very good point. Um, yeah, how many people were there? We don't know. No. We talk about three wise men. Yeah, uh, it could have been a dozen. Who knows? Yes. Could have been five. Could have been, yeah. you know, less than that. And probably with a harem and some camels and other things, kind of exactly. following them around. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. To actually have the the big crowds that would have mm. been following along. Um, Marin and I had a US TV crew come and do a documentary on us some years ago. Mm. Uh, well, actually, just a couple of years ago called uh, A Journey Through Broken Dreams. And that was based on the Resurrection Year book. And then they came back to me and said, look, would you be interested in hosting something? Mm. We're, we're looking at something on the Magi. And the Magi, for me, just brings everything that I'm about together. It's about spiritual journeys. Mm. Um, it's about... Uh, it's, it's not about... Um, uh, it's not an in-conversation with one faith group. It's actually one faith group over here going to seek the king of another faith group over there. What's going on? Why? Yeah, yeah, why it's all about spiritual journeying. Uh, lots of mystery as to who they are, yeah. where they were from. And so this documentary uh, is is going to be exploring that. There's three ideas as to where they're from. Were they, um, were they Arabian? Were they Babylonian? Were they Persian? Mm. For years I thought they were Persian. This documentary, I think I've been convinced that they're actually Arabian. Mm. And you might go, well, what does that matter? It does make a huge difference because especially at the moment with the conflicts in the Middle East, it actually means there is something to bring these two groups together. Right. Wow. So, yeah, so that could have some real political ramification. <laughs> really, it really could. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, we're, we've written the script. Um, looks like there's going to be about three uh, trips over to both Jordan and um, Israel to, to get the footage. Mm. At the moment, they're just waiting on, they're just kind of bringing in the last bit of fun- funding for it. So just had a big funding uh, boost come through. And uh, yeah, so it is going to be exciting. You're at the start of that project, or it feels like still at the start of that project. When you think about the things that you love the most, like where, where do you get the most energy in the start, in the middle? Uh, are, you, are you a completer finisher or are you a kind of starter and then hope for the best type person? All of the projects that I do, whether it's uh, a, a short script or whether it's yeah, a whole hour-long documentary type thing like that, I will find I generally go through three or four very similar f- phases and that the first one is a sense of excitement because I kind of get the eureka moment, the, the aha, oh, this is where it could go. Mm. Um, I start working into it and I go, oh my goodness, <laughs> <laughs> what have I done? Yeah. What have I done taking on this project? This idea, maybe it's not going to float, but I'm already into it. We've got time, we've got deadlines happening. Then there is some sort of breakthrough and then there's just a hard slog of completion. Mm. I don't know if I like any of those things. <laughs> <laughs> But I, I, there was a, an author, I can't remember their name, and numerous people have been associated with the quote, but they said, I don't like writing. I like having written, mm. and that's definitely me. Right. I like afterwards, at the end of the day, being able to look back and say, you know what, there's some good paragraphs there. Uh, but in the process, I find it hard work. So <laughs> um, it's only radio, really, that I can walk into and feel like I'm energized in the moment. Yeah. Generally, it's for me, the other projects, it's afterwards mm. that I can go, okay, that's, that's good. Okay. Well, we hope to look back on some good work in the next couple of months and have you back to talk about it when it's ready to be shown. But thank you so much for taking the time, Sharon. It's lovely to spend time with you as always. And uh, yeah, blessings for everything that's coming in the next year for you. Thank you, James. Great conversation. Really enjoyable. Thanks. Thanks. 
Thanks so much to Sheridan for taking the time to really open up and discuss these difficult, sometimes challenging issues with us. But I hope you found it as useful as I did to really get into the background of his career. If you want to find out more about Sheridan, you can obviously find him on social media and bump into him, I'm sure, at one of our upcoming events, including the monthly pub club that happens regularly in central London, as well as also our trends briefing for 2019. And you can find all of the information you need for those events on our new website, christiansinmedia.co.uk. That's christiansinmedia.co.uk, where you can also find out more about what's going on throughout the year, sign up for conferences, read the newsletter, and get into some of the latest content that is running on our blog, where we've got some fascinating articles being written by our editors and also many of you. If that's something that you're into, you might want to go and check out some of the more recent articles, including reflections on the most recent church and media conference from 2018. And you can also find articles there about updates of what's happening around the world and particularly here in the UK when it comes to the world of Christians in media. So that's there for you, christiansinmedia.co.uk. For now, I want to say a massive thank you for, again, sticking with us throughout this year and making the podcast what it is. If you've got recommendations or people that you want to hear on the show, we would love your suggestions. You can do that on Twitter or on Facebook. And of course, you can always drop us an email, signal at christiansinmedia.co.uk. I'm your host, James Poulter. And if you want to get in touch with me, you can also always find me on social media at James Poulter. I'd love to be in touch with you and get your feedback about the show. For now, we wish you a very Merry Christmas and a happy 2019 as we enter into it. It's going to be another amazing year for us and we will hope that God blesses you over this festive period. So from all of us at Christians in Media, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.